If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be easily defendable, and here's why. In this episode, we find some answers to how do we ensure a group of powerful adventurers doesn't mop the floor with us? And what are the steps to think through to lock down your fortress of solitude? And what wonders await you from the mind of Keith Amon? That's right. He back. Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Travis. And I'm his brother, Jordan. Today, we're talking about layers. Might not be the topic you expected from Keith Amon because he's usually talking about monster tactics and player tactics, but layers, deep, dark ones, full of danger and traps and tricks. The layers that you dread, the ones that feel alien, you know you shouldn't be there, and a party should feel like Ripley in the final act of Alien, like profusely sweating (laughs) and carefully peeking around every corner getting spendy with that flamethrower fuel yeah 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 everything's on the line so why is it that we rarely put more thought into a monster's lair than reading off some lair actions and saying this is in a cave i guess i've been there dozens and dozens and dozens (laughs) of times of just like yeah uh uh, this is gonna be the location i actually have a map ready for this so that's as much prep as I'm going to put into my monster lair. Yeah. I have map. I have monster. Monster map. Monster encounter. Like you said about Alien, this is often the climax of a story. This is a set piece. Right. This is where you want to put that prep time. And who better to help us with that prep time than the tactical mind of Keith Amon to add some tension to a lair and remind players of the dangers that they face. I'd say literally no one on earth is that better <laughs> is better <laughs> suited this. to help us do that. If you're unfamiliar with Keith Amon, he's the author of the absolutely incredible blog and book, The Monsters Know What They're Doing, and of course, more, The Monsters Know What They're Doing. That first one won an any in 2020, so there's that. Because it's an absolutely incredible resource yeah. for playing better monsters. And there's a lot of products out there that are like, this is for this specific situation, or this is for if you're playing this style of game. But Keith's work is always so universally applicable to pretty much all D&D. Right. There isn't many things that I would say is an absolute must for every GM or DM out there. Yeah. And don't forget, he also wrote Live to Tell the Tale, an exploration of how to survive Keith's monsters as a player. He had to give some tactics <laughs> to the other side of the table. They were just stumbling around. Because <laughs> they were getting decimated <laughs> by Keith's ideas. Yeah. And now he's back with how to defend your lair. And it's really cool because he guides you through thinking about your monster lair. He speaks to you, the reader, as if you're the monster defending your lair. Right. Which is a very fun twist. He's got dozens of designed monster lairs with maps so that you can not only see the process in action, but run them as pre-made brilliant lairs, like they're ready to go. And he also peppers in some magic items and new monster stat blocks and variations that are specific to guarding a lair. 
And then the most important piece is that Keith has a brilliant tactical brain and he has, oh, it's just, it's so speaking to us and who we are as GMs and podcasters and the kind of stuff that we love. Because if you think we go on deep dives, (laughs) Keith has gone into incredibly deep exploratory information on every one of these different topics that he proposes on like real world ideas and science and process and theories on how to keep something defensible. Yeah. It's but then brilliant. Still distills that down into something a DM can use. Right. Not just all this conceptual mamma jamma. Like sometimes <laughs> once in a while we might do. And we have a theory that Keith is so good at thinking like a brilliant diabolical monster because he is, in fact, a diabolical, remorseless, clever monster inhabiting the last place that you would expect a jovial, happy, warm human skin suit. <laughs> He's a very nice man. So how was how was this book born? Like, this is kind of a diversion from your typical. Yeah, it came from a blog post that was a departure from my usual blog post back in 2017. I wrote a post called Thoughts on Building Encounters that was just some kind of stream of consciousness musing on defensible space and the fact that when you are a dungeon master creating a location for a potential combat encounter, you're not just populating it with monsters, you're also drawing the map. If you are the monster getting into the head of the monster, like I like to do, you want your lair or your location to have certain features that are advantageous to you and disadvantageous to anyone who comes in and wants to kill you and take your stuff. And so when you're drawing the maps, you should be thinking about what kind of location the monster or monsters or villain or villains would be looking for that would benefit them and offer them defensible space. And it was kind of a throwaway. Posts like that on the blog, I generally tag with meta. When Saga Press came to me and said, what are you going to write next after the monsters know and live to tell? I was casting around for ideas, and one of the ones I put forth as a suggestion was to expand on this blog post and develop the whole idea of how how do you defend your lair. That was the most popular choice, and so I went with it. What a tremendous deep dive it is, too, because it struck me as such a fun place to start to you know explore all of the the crevices and corners like you've got stuff on locks you've got stuff on um <laughs> interrogation tech like just the, the locks were a last minute addition actually i i had the whole manuscript in the can and then i suddenly thought i didn't talk about locks at all <laughs> and so i added and i added that whole section at the last minute nice wow because you then reference it in your layers later on too, right? I, th- mm-hmm. I thought that added Yeah, a lot I, up- to it. I updated the layers. Like originally the layers just said, you know, this door is locked. It's this difficult to pick. And then I started thinking more like, well, what kind of lock? How can I make the locks more interesting? Especially the arcane locks, because I started thinking about the spell arcane lock, which for those who don't know, 
it adds 10 to the difficulty class of any attempt to pick it. Well, how? What does it do <laughs> to make it two stops more difficult to pick? Right. And I thought that would be a really interesting opportunity for flavor and customization. Like what if if you're trying to pick a lock that's arcane locked in the lair of a drow priestess, what if it feels like you've got spiders crawling all over your hands? Right. You know, what if uh, in the lair of a transmuter, you have a lock whose wards come to life and move to block the picks and things like that? What if it makes your lock picks feel intensely hot or intensely cold? Or it fills your hands with a pins and needles feeling? Or what if the lock just animates and tries to bite you? You know, there were there were so many fun ways to do this. And uh, I, I realized it was it was indispensable. I had to put in something about that. And that's the kind of value that we always get out of your blog and your books is just this other level of thought that goes into everything that you kind of do that you know, otherwise would have been like that encounter or that pick experience would have been, okay, the rogue busts out their lock picks, roll a dice and no, you fail. Mm -hmm. Moving on. <laughs> like it's, it doesn't have that, that same kind of flavor and juice. That's a classic struggle of DMs is how to make that lock picking experience interesting and to pepper that into a book that's already full of other gems is pretty cool. In terms of the kind of prep that went into this, how much was it compared to like your normal approach to say writing a you know a particular monster take versus oh like, tons tons it ate 13 months of my life my blog went on a completely unintentional one year one month hiatus while i was working on this book because i just didn't have time to do my regular blogging work i apologize to every reader i lost or almost lost during that time because yeah the book completely took over my life for uh for all that time i'm back now blogging again i, I finished <laughs> up eberron and i've been working on fisbin's treasury of dragons on the blog but yeah this book was a huge undertaking and it was so worth it so we want to jump into some of the steps that you talk about keith in how to defend your lair in the strategy state this is the strategy stateroom where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most. So like we said in the intro that we've got so many things to potentially pick Keith's brain over, but he delivers every single step that you need to think through in the introduction, in the first three and a half pages of the book, <laughs> is every step to thinking your way through an incredible monster lair. Just rattling through some of those steps, we start off with a security assessment. Then detection, deterring, and responding. Then traps and concealment. You got to think about the climate and terrain that they're in. How to populate that lair. And probably a personal favorite is... Battle plan and prisoners. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through each one of those steps and we're going to have you, Keith, maybe add some extra flavor and what each of those steps really entails so that anyone can kind of look at a monster, run through these steps 
and come up with something better regardless. Let's start with security assessment. Okay. Well, the first thing is you cannot just start with the monster. You know, that's the traditional approach is figure out what your monster is, draw a map, populate the map, and then decide where to sprinkle in the treasure. One of the big departures that I take in how to defend your lair is to say, you need to begin with what the owner of the lair is trying to protect. I call that the three L's, life, loot, and lore. So is the monster just trying to protect itself? Then the life is all that matters. Is the monster trying to protect loot? Then you want to break down the loot and figure out which items are the most valuable. And there are many different kinds of value. There's intrinsic value, monetary value, operational value, which is how useful something is, economic value, which is how use, how much something might be worth in the future, regulatory value, which is a kind of value that gives you the right to do something under the law, or intangible value, meaning it's not really worth anything except to the extent that you feel that it's worth something. Right. Figure that out for every asset, life, loot, or lore that you're trying to protect, and then start with the most valuable. That is the thing you're going to give the most attention to protecting and construct your lair around how you're going to protect that thing. And then think about the next most valuable thing, and then the next most valuable thing, and the next most valuable thing. You're basically devoting the most attention and the most resources to the most valuable assets first, and then you work your way down the list until you run out of resources, at which point everything that's left is like, well, I did my best, you know, at least I've got all this other more important stuff protected. Mm -hmm. And I just love the simplicity you bring to these concepts because, you know, at first that sounds like a lot, but then you even give a system that gives a numerical value to each of those things that that the monster values and it's a fast and loose system it's it's by no means precise but it, it's really it doesn't have to be precise it just has to be internally consistent and it doesn't even have to be internally consistent uh, across every layer that you're working on it just has to be internally consistent within that one particular layer so that you get a decent prioritization and there will occasionally be instances in which you rate the value of a certain material asset or informational asset more highly than you rate your own life. Does that mean you're going to die to protect it? Not necessarily. What it means is you're going to devote more resources to protecting it and more attention and more thought to how to protect it. And the example I give in the book is you may never spend a single dime on personal security. But if you buy an extremely expensive piece of jewelry, you might decide that you need to protect it from burglars by buying and installing a wall safe. And so maybe you spend $1,000 or $1,500 on that. You never spent any money on protecting yourself. Obviously, you want to live more than you want to hold on to that necklace. But because of the particular value of that necklace, 
it was more vulnerable. You decided it was more important to spend money on protecting that thing. Right. And already you've added this level of believability to how a monster might protect their lair with something like this security assessment, because I, as a typical GM, am going to look at my monster and go, okay, they need a lair. And the heroes are going to come in from this direction. And this is where they're going to see traps because obviously I need to, you know, whittle down my hero's HP. That, <laughs> that is, you know, you're building a whole lair for the adventurers, not for the sake of the monster or the villain, yeah. which is just so much more. You, you feel like you're there when you put that level of, of attention towards the security assessment. Yeah. And actually, you know, somebody might come to this and think, oh, he's going to talk a lot about traps. And I actually talk very little about traps because one of the logical problems with traps, especially the kind of extremely deadly cinematic traps that dungeon masters like to stick in their lairs, is that you can't have live active traps in the middle of places that you have to walk around and do things during the day. You don't want to endanger yourself or your your essential minions with your own traps. So there are only certain places that traps should go. And oftentimes the better route to go with them is not traps that maim or kill, but traps that immobilize or imprison, especially ones that are that are going to be in high traffic areas. A very, very elementary kind of trap is simply the double portcullis in a castle gate. You know, right. if you have not just one portcullis, but two, they operate as a sort of airlock where you never open both portcullises at the same time. You open the outside one, you let somebody come in, you close the outside one, then you decide, is it okay to open the inside one? Or should we just, you know, shoot arrows into the vestibule and drop rocks on people's heads? Right. Which might, you know, in certain cases be the uh, wiser move. Yeah. Well, the last thing the lich wants to do when he wakes up in the morning and goes and gets his coffee in his fluffy bunny slippers is stumble across yeah. his own. <laughs> right. Yeah. But because liches uh, are immune to poison, big rooms full of poison are terrific for liches because they can just walk right through that. Yeah. Right. They don't have to worry about it. Doesn't stop them. It stops people they don't want to come after them. They walk into so, the aromatherapy room, uh, which yeah, is actually... Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's how they flavor their coffee. Yeah. So let's talk about detection, deterring, and responding. This comes from basic building security principles. I mean, I got them literally out of a textbook on building security. Love it. And they it, actually, those are what the three little doblings on the cover represent, detection, re deterrence, and response. Love um, that. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, those are those are their nicknames in my head canon. <laughs> you have to know when an intrusion attempt is taking place or is about to take place. You need to have measures in place to slow down, stop, or discourage the intrusion attempt. And you need to have an active way of dealing with a successful intrusion attempt. You need all three of these pieces. If any of the pieces is missing, the other two fail. Mm -hmm. You need to have one something of each. 
that's where you can build in a lot of the flavor because some creatures have height senses, some creatures have divination magic or detection magic. Some creatures simply can field uh, a lot of henchmen who can keep watch. Sometimes, uh, for example, if you're in an urban lair, you can let eyes on the street do a lot of that work for you. But somehow you have to have a way of knowing that an intrusion attempt is coming or is imminent or is in progress. Spies are an important component of that. Reconnaissance patrols are an important component of that. Deterrence, high walls, thick walls, heads on spikes, locks on doors, all of the things that create obstacles, either obvious or non-obvious, fall under deterrence. And then response is basically your boss fight. This is the moment somebody actually got in and you have to stop them from getting to your assets. And I, I phrase it that way very intentionally because the goal is not to kill the intruders. The goal is not to capture the intruders. The goal is not to do anything except stop them from getting to your assets. Or if that fails, stop them from getting away with your assets. Because that's the important thing. It is all about protecting the assets. Well, and the same is true for any home security. Exactly. Detection is the alarm system itself. Your mm -hmm. deterring is the sticker on the window that says this home is mm -hmm. protected. And then the response is the security that comes to check things out. Exactly. And those three get extrapolated into these monstrous proportions, which is so cool. Yeah. Just your, your very simple, primitive, early medieval Mott and Bailey castle. The tower is detection. The right. palisade is deterrence and the garrison is response. That's so, so simple. It's all there. Yeah. Yeah. Every technological iteration of the castle going forward, every single improvement and change, a new architectural device is simply a way of improving your detection, improving your deterrence or improving your response. Right. Even something like the Red Keep from Game of Thrones, its size and its scale is really just a piss off. We're really strong. Don't don't even think about mm -hmm. it. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It provides me with so much more creativity than I would have had without it. Like I'm looking at your goblins on the cover and thinking to myself like, yeah, OK, so detection. What what are they going to ally with that's going to be way better at spotting things than them? What kind of creatures? And and my mind's just whirring based on three <laughs> yeah. simple framework. Love it. Well, let's talk about traps and concealment, because that's your, your next step is considering your way through those. Well, and as I mentioned, traps, you mostly do not want to have dangerous live traps in high traffic areas. Anything in a high traffic area should be designed to capture rather than maim. Um, because if somebody, you know, if, if one of your own soldiers gets trapped between the two portcullises, big deal. He says, hey, Eddie, let me out. And they do. <laughs> where you want deadlier traps is in the places where your borders between concentric security zones or, or parts of your envelope, by which I mean the uh, outer physical layer of your lair, where it's permeable. 
and where, importantly, not just where it's permeable, but where you cannot spare personnel to watch things more actively. So we're talking about like the forest outside. Yeah, or the grounds around a mansion or like windows that you just, you don't have security cameras necessarily. So what if there's a window someone could come in? You put a trap on that. Right. Or if there's a a patch of your grounds that is not visible from any place where you have sentries, that's a kind of place where you might want to put a trap. In case somebody tries to go there in order to avoid detection, the trap is there to punish them. Really, traps are for where you cannot spare the personnel. Concealment, it's another form of deterrence. If you don't want someone to get into your lair, one of the best ways to do that is to make sure they don't know where it is. And so you can do that by hiding, blending, or disguising. Hiding put it behind something else so there's no direct line of sight on it. Blending, make it indistinguishable from its surroundings. Disguising, okay, you can see it, but you think it's something else. The different ways that those can play together, you give the one example, which I just thought was absolutely diabolical, the reverse gravity in a glyph of warding to create this Rube Goldberg effect where you're shooting people up. I was just like, holy shit, Keith is evil. I had some fun with that one. That was so good. (laughs) Yeah. But you can only get away with nonsense like that at a really high level where you've got someone who can command a lot of money and a lot of magic. Something like that is completely infeasible for a bandit hideout. But for the lair of a lich, you can go all out. You can do crazy stuff. Yeah. So thinking through those different tactics is really what helped unlock some things for me in terms of how can I combine these mm-hmm. into really like to think about them each individually is helpful then to combine them and start to figure out how they play together. Um, those traps and concealment, that's where the magic really starts to to create some really deadly layers. And to get back to that lich layer, one of the things that was so much fun about that lich layer is how it combines the complicated Rube Goldberg stuff with just very, very simple sleight of hand. You've got this tower. People naturally want to go up the tower. They, th- you know, because th- that's what they think. You come in at the bottom, obviously you've got to go up to the top, but there's nothing at the top because it's a feint. The, the actual lair is behind a secret door that's on the level where you came in. <laughs> but the secret door is extremely well concealed And there are all these other distractions. There are all these red herrings in the tower, things to harass you, things to drain your resources while you're trying to get in and and to just waste your time. (laughs) Because a lot of defenses are simply about destroying the invader's momentum. Right. And draining their resources so that you have more time to confront them And when you do, they have fewer resources to fight back with. And I love this idea of this tower of terror that wears you down. And I want (laughs) to be at that table when the GM gets to reveal that they were standing next to the entrance the whole time when they came in. That's so brilliant. I do love that you mentioned throughout about protecting the assets. and, And that changed so much for me, how I'm going to run those creatures in there, always falling back, always just delaying, trying to mess with them. They're not 
you know, you don't have to run at them with your sword drawn and put your life on the line. That's not your job. And that was a huge click for me, for sure. The next step is climate and terrain. So this was another section that I thought was really, really cool because you put a detailed breakdown that really kind of pulls you out of the fantasy trope mindset. And you talk about high altitude advantages and what kind of creatures would you find there? And I mean, chef's kiss (laughs) to the rationalizing why dwarves are built the way that they're built for high climate. (laughs) Like that was... That was tremendous. You look at people who live in the Andes Mountains, they basically look like that. I mean, because that is the kind of body type that acclimates you to high altitudes where the oxygen is thin. So the various types of terrain, I go from least complicated to most complicated. So something like grassland or just basic hills, these offer almost no complications. You know, the the biggest complication might be that a castle is built on a craggy hill with a gentle slope on one side and steep slopes on all the other sides. And that's an advantageous place to be because you're higher up, you can see farther. Invaders have to work against gravity to get up to where you are. But really, there's not much else. There's not much to obstruct visibility. There's not much to obstruct movement. It's mostly pretty open and straightforward. And if you're really looking to be undiscovered, they're probably not great places to be because they don't harass your unwanted visitors enough, basically. Mm-hmm. That's why your your very conventional castles tend to be built in these kind of areas. They are very rich in resources, So it's a good place to be if you consume a lot of resources, but if you need the terrain to do the work for you, they're not going to do a lot of that. Um, Forests and deserts will do more for you. Swamps will do a lot more for you. Arctic or mountain or underground or underwater terrain will do a lot for you. These places can be extremely hazardous for trespassers in a variety of insensitive ways. And as the owner of the lair in one of these places, you should be making use of all of them. And if one of these is your native terrain, um, then you've got massive, massive advantages because you're adapted to them in ways that the trespassers are not. Just coming through some of that thought pattern of of where do I wanna put my lair, it does kind of force you as a GM as well to consider all of these different attributes, because like you say, you could put your lair Mm -hmm. at the top of a mountain, but trade routes aren't there. Right. Or fences. If you're a you're a thieves guild, then that's not going to be an ideal spot for you. So you're going to have to get real creative with more trafficked areas and find ways Mm -hmm. of, of defending them. Yeah. For example, if you have a mountaintop lair, you have to have some kind of supply route coming up from places down slope where the resources come from. Mm -hmm. If you can't supply all your own needs at the top of the mountain, okay, so you're a rock or you're a dragon and you can fly down and get what you need and then fly back up, you're fine. Mm -hmm. But if a group of bandits with a mountain hideout, you need some way to bring up food. You need some way to bring up metal to make weapons with and so forth. These things are not going to be there in abundance where you are which you're then going to need to protect because that's where I'm looking as an invader (laughs) of your mountaintop fortress, Travis. 
Right. <laughs> the supply routes are a vulnerability for you. And so now you almost want to give more attention to defending the supply route than you do to defending the lair itself. Right. Yeah. You end up distributing your forces very differently in that event. Whereas my lair is going to be underwater because I want to use those rules that you made, Keith, for <laughs> deep water trauma. <laughs> that was a highlight. So this is actually one of the largest sections in your book, aside from your, your 16 layers that you've laid out. But this section in particular in the terrain brought up, for me at least, so many ideas of how I can hamper my players. You know, going back to the whole mountain example, you even talk about the, the sunlight at high altitudes, mm -hmm. about how punishing that really is. And it provides just so much flavor to work with when planning out an adventure that goes to one of these places. And it may have no mechanical effect, but sure. it will add that flavor. Right? Yeah. You, know, you can describe it and you can make your players feel like they're doing more work just by describing the harshness of the conditions that they're ascending through, even if they don't have to make a single constitution check, you know, you can still say, you know, you're dealing with X, you're dealing with Y, you're dealing with Z. And they'll be like, oh God, make it stop. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's what this is all about. Like that's what it does for us at least is just add so much more of that. Let's talk about population or, you know, populating that layer. It would be trivially simple to just take a villain and say, and they have 10,000 guards. Because <laughs> I am <out>. God. <laughs> you know, okay, yeah, that's the simple approach, but it doesn't hold up to logic. There's no way any kind of villain or even supernatural creature short of maybe an archdevil or an emperor could right. command that many troops let alone to defend one single location and its assets. It just doesn't make sense. So I give some rules of thumb for how many XP worth of minions a particular creature can directly command or can have in some sort of service of the defense of their lair even if they just happen to be wandering monsters populating the countryside. Because a monster does not have to be under your direct command, or an animal doesn't have to be under your direct command to participate in the defense of your lair just by being dangerous to somebody who's trying to come at you. So for example, if you're a white dragon, you might have a lot of winter wolves in the area around your lair. You don't command them. They have no relationship to you. It's just that the kind of terrain that you are native to and you are adapted to, so are they. That's good hunting ground for them. And they are not big and important enough for you to see them as a rival. So you just, you know, say, okay, yeah, they can hang around and harass anyone who tries to come at me. Looking at those kinds of affinities, what, what other creatures share my particular adaptations to my environment? And would I find them to be useful for protecting the place where I live and the things that I value? Those are good things to sprinkle in for flavor and for 
additional encounters on the way in, but you don't want to load them up too much. Because one of the things I also talk about in this section is that on the main pathway into your lair, you want to mass a lot of combat power to make sure you can deal decisively with anyone who tries to invade that way. What that means in terms of building an adventuring day is that you might be using up to half of the entire adventuring day's budget on that one main battle. What that means is that on any other battles people might have to go through on their way to you without a chance to rest in between, you have to keep them very, very limited. Otherwise, your players are going to get chewed up and spat out. You have to make sure that those initial encounters are nothing more than basically harassment. Like you've you've got enough budget basically left if if there's no opportunity to rest for one more medium encounter or a couple of easy ones. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to lay it on any thicker than that. You want to let the detection and deterrence components do a lot more of the work of obstructing the PCs rather than the combat encounters, which would be included in response. Because if the PCs have to use too many of their resources dealing with trivial stuff before they get to that main battle, then it is going to be a massacre and extremely unsatisfying, no fun at all. Right. And um, you you have to leave the PCs with enough resources for that nail-biting battle to actually still be fun. It's a great reminder. We're here to provide a great experience for players to tell a, a really epic story. And that's why the resistance is necessary. Otherwise, they just walk right in. That's why you're right. doing all of this work, really, is just provide that better story, but to go overboard. <laughs> Results in a TPK, and those aren't super popular. But, mm-hmm. um, I mean, all that's really useful tools to run a game. I like in that section how you also even get me thinking about how the difference in leadership from these different creatures and monsters is going to affect their army, like their charisma versus their intelligence versus if they're just, if a goblin's in charge, it's not going to have more than, you know, <laughs> 20 other it's goblins. It's going to be kind of slapstick. It's yeah. not going to be high discipline. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I really like that section too. Your final step is really thinking through your battle plan and your prisoners. And a lot of that came directly from uh, a couple of U.S. Army field manuals, actually. Now, <laughs> Army combat doctrine is based around the assumption that everyone is carrying guns, you know, and that it doesn't really take melee combat into account. So adaptations have to be made. But the general ideas of massing combat power about where and when you deploy reserves and where and when you deploy reconnaissance units and security units the idea of a main battle area is central to army doctrine concerning area defense, which is the the kind of task that defending a lair is. The idea of having multiple battle positions and ways for your combatants to 
fall back and attack invaders from alternate positions to make sure that uh, you're also keeping eyes on alternative routes that invaders might come in by the uh, the principles of retreat, which is not necessarily the same thing as running away. All it is is pulling back to a different position. You might be fleeing, but you might also be drawing the enemy forward into an area that's more tactically advantageous for you and less tactically advantageous for them. Or it might simply be delaying the enemy while behind your line, you're securing the assets or evacuating them in some way. And it also depends a lot on whether the environment outside the lair is more dangerous than being inside the lair during an attack. I mean, for example, if you've got your Fortress of Solitude up in the Arctic, and you are not yourself an Arctic creature, you might be even more certain to die if you flee your lair and run across the polar tundra wastes than if you stay and fight. So whether the owner of the lair can survive outside the lair is a major determinant in whether they run away or fight to the death. Right. That provides so much explanation as to why and what conditions somebody would fight to the death. Because usually that's the approach that we're a lot of us are going to take when we run a monster. I don't know what stage they're going to leave or they're going to try to retreat. So I guess they just fight to the death. Well, but especially most creatures layers. don't. Yeah. Because like in, in the GM's mind, you're thinking like, this is the place where he makes his last stand in the lair, right? There's no other option. Well, yes, there is a very... Yeah, there is another option. It's <laughs> yeah. you pick up your most valuable things and you get out of there. <laughs> right. You can make another layer. Yeah. Oh, God. There's a really funny term um, that the, the army manual uses. It calls these retrograde actions, Ooh. <laughs> which cracks me up. I love I love that. It's such a magnificent euphemism. <laughs> um, but there are there are three different kinds of retrograde actions. Delaying, withdrawing, and retiring. Withdrawing is the one most people think of when they think of retreat. It's you are in contact with the enemy and you are getting the heck out of contact with the enemy. Um, but there's also delaying, which is um, staying behind to waste the enemy's time while other combatants get away. And there's retiring, which is moving away from the battle to a new position before you actually get into contact with the enemy. So if, if you're not already in contact with the enemy, but you hear the enemy's coming and you, you say, okay, time to go, that's not withdrawing, that's retiring. So there are different conditions under which you would want to do each. Just a tactical goldmine. <laughs> yes. This, this whole book really is. Retiring is such a good term, though. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm just picturing the goblin that's just like, I retire, puts down his sword. <laughs> no, no, that's not what we mean. Get back here. <laughs> we gotta go. I'd, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but you have an entire section on interrogation that actually mm -hmm. teaches you how to interrogate as opposed to the typical approach that we don't need to go into that a lot of adventurers will have um but 
it's all based on real techniques, which mm-hmm. like that was such a valuable learning asset within this book alone. Like it's it's one of so many reasons to pick it up. Yeah. And that information came from another military intelligence manual. You could definitely tell. It has nothing to do with brute force. <laughs> Let me just tell you. Yeah. It's... No, in fact, brute force is, is very, very counterproductive in your stronger willed interrogation subjects. It just makes them more stubborn and more determined to resist you. And in your more weak willed ones, it makes them tell you whatever they think you want to hear. And you get bad information from it. Exactly. You just you just get things that confirm your own biases, or you get things that confirm what people think your biases are. And either way, you can't rely on it. And I absolutely love that because what a great way to teach your players <laughs> that that is not the tack to take mm-hmm. the next time they do try to you know brute force punch a, an answer out of somebody in a dark alley, thinking that that's the way to go give them the wrong information and they'll have mm-hmm. to think of some better ways of trying to to inquire the truth out of someone. So, so good. Let's talk about the book a little bit. The research process on this book, like you employed the army manual, you've employed like, what were some of the more surprising places that you found answers for, you know, stuff that went into this book? There's one tidbit that I took from a recently published book by Brian Claus called Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. And it's all about basically the the, the fallacies that lead us to put terrible people in charge of things. But one of the things that it included in there was talking about how assigning people to the same duties all the time increases their temptation toward corruption. It it increases the likelihood that they are going to steal something or um, leak information to the wrong people or whatever. It basically makes them more corruptible. And so one of the things you need to do in order to keep a workforce or a guard force honest is to rotate duties constantly, make sure that um, people are doing all different things. Nobody gets the scut work all the time. Mm. You know, nobody's guarding the jewels all the time. And also build in some integrity tests. And then importantly, reward people for passing them. Um, Say, you know, here was a chance when such and such could have spilled the beans or could have pocketed something and they didn't good job such and such employee of the month you know <laughs> um but that yeah that and and that wasn't even a book i was reading for research that was just a book i happened to be reading and thought oh this applies to what i'm working on okay yoink yeah. you know and i and i put it in funny how many places you'll find those kinds of inspirations that's going on mm-hmm. my list, though. I want to make an episode about that. It's super fast. But I also have some some friends and uh, former colleagues, one who uh, is a geologist and so was able to tell me a little bit about, about mining and about cave formation, and uh, another one who was in the Navy and who was able to gut check the things I was writing about coastal defense 
So, you know, I, wow. I just, I just pulled from wherever. <laughs> so good. A diver to help me with the stuff on dive trauma. That yeah. was some horrifying stuff, by the way. <laughs> Ironically, a lot of that is worse if you're scuba diving than if you're free diving. Mostly you, you have people either trying to swim to the depths with no kind of enhancement at all, or they've got a water breathing spell on. And I figure it's fair to assume that anyone who is employing magic to help them breathe water, that same magic is protecting them from the pressure. Right. Hmm. Until the magic ends, at least. You <laughs> and know, then, then it's real bad. <laughs> then you, yeah, then it gets real. Right. Yeah. And that, that makes total sense because you're not casting water breathing so you can go snorkeling. You're diving down somewhere you shouldn't be. <laughs> mm -hmm. The last time we talked to you, it was about live to tell the tale and you told us how much effort it was to put together the sample battles i remember that specifically was it kind of the same for the layers in this book was it a oh different god process? yes yeah yeah <laughs> no it was it was the same except that this time i had help um because i had an excellent team of cartographers and i described the layers and what the layers needed to include and then the cartographers did a lot of the actual layer architecture mm. so they they did a, a lot of the design like i said it's got to include a b c and d and then they gave me a map that included a b c and d and then we fine-tuned shaped and molded until until the layers did what they needed to do so yeah, terrific, terrific group of cartographers I worked with. Dungeon Baker, Chloe Bolland, Fernando Salvatera, uh, reclusive cartographer. Right on. I'm glad you're giving them credit because you're right. They did such a good job at illustrating some of the perspectives and some of the aspects of these layers that are pretty hard to convey. So like there's lessons that I'm going to take when I'm trying to communicate that to my players for sure. Yeah. And the art is just beautiful. Too. Yeah. Gorgeous. gorgeous this is why again this book has so much raw value in it to the average gm because if you're running a grung a were rat a wizard a thieves den a unicorn vampire hag <laughs> a green dragon drow aboleth like it goes on and on you got 16 layers mm -hmm. in here you're covered if ready you're doing to those. go and they've been ruthlessly thought out and that's just <laughs> well so and, and a couple cool. of them like the unicorn grove and the genie palace these are good creatures right because designing a lair is not just something that villains do you've also got good aligned creatures that have assets that they want to protect homes that they want to defend how do they go about it you right. know those exercises are interesting too so i i wouldn't necessarily use these 16 layers as a campaign path by any means they're really meant to be more illustrative than anything else here's an idea i had here's where i went with it use this as inspiration for what you want to create for the villain you came up with and where you want to go with it. Mm -hmm. They can be run as one-shot scenarios if you want. They will require a little bit of, you know, your own personal input in order to do that. They're not comprehensive. They're not they're not designed to be. They are there as inspiration and illustration 
and things you can take and mess with if you want. Very similar to your your blog posts. You know, it's just mm-hmm. these are considerations and this is going to make the right. game better if you put some thought in here. But you did recently run them as one shots, right? At a convention? How'd that go? I did. Yes. Yes. Bust my lair. I had <laughs> I had several events like that at Gamehole Con to illustrate how they worked. Yeah. yeah. The uh, players were big fans. It worked as well as you'd hoped. We had two successful bustings. One that ran out of time, but I think probably would have succeeded if they had had more time to stick with it. And one that got trapped and failed. Oh, it's good to know there's some success. Because I mean, one of the things mm-hmm. that's always on my mind is like, what must Keith's players think of his games <laughs> at this point? <laughs> the answer is, I'm always rooting for my players. Right. What I want to give them is a challenge worthy of them. I want to give them a success that they justifiably feel like they've worked for and can take a lot of satisfaction in. Right. That's what I like to aim for. And that's what I've aimed for with these. Every one of them has a minimum recommended level. Certainly you can run them for PCs of lower than that level, but they will get smushed. If you run them for the recommended level or above, they'll have to work for it. But if they are creative and use their resources well, they will probably succeed. I'm sure that's your design philosophy too, is like encouraging creative solutions. And like, that's the whole point Mm -hmm. of a lair. You don't just walk Mm -hmm. right down the middle and fight everything that jumps out at you. No, because that is exactly what the lair owner is devoting the most resources to preventing. Yeah. And you can only have fun strategy as a player if there's something to strategize against. So, right. So you need shenanigans. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Well, at the date that this episode comes out, How to Defend Your Lair will arrive on bookshelves the day after, November 29th. Mm-hmm. How to Defend Your Lair is going to be out on shelves if you need to pre-order it the day before. Uh, does that help, <laughs> Keith? Does that help drive up? Uh, every you know? every pre-order helps. Pre-orders are fantastic for authors. It shows the publisher that there is demand for the book. It shows people like what you do. November 28th, if you're listening to this on a Monday, go and pre-order <laughs> that book and let's show Keith some love because it is a tremendous, tremendous book. It's one of our favorites that you've put out so far. It's just, it's such a valuable resource. You can find out what Keith's up to and any new content that he's working on at themonstersno.com and at, at Keith Amon. Uh, uh, on Twitter. Yeah. If we are coming to you from the smoking crater that used to be Twitter, you can also (laughs) find me at at Keith Amon at dice.camp. That's a Mastodon server. And I will also be at PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia, December 2nd through 4th. Oh, very cool. Thank you very much to our patrons that helped make this episode possible. Uh, Kirk T, Ninja Ducky, Suart, Blackthorn, First Law, Peacock Dreams, DM Thunderbomb, Marley R, Gar the Pirate, Time Warp, Dangerous Marmalade, Zach G, No Ma'am, Michelle T, Felix R, Chris F, Lucas D, Lila G, The GM Tim, Nevermore, Thomas W, DM Natsky, Heavy Arms, Eric R, Aldross, Leprechaun, and Will HP. Thank you very much, Keith, for joining us for this episode. This has been an absolute treat, uh, and yeah, we're huge fans of all your work, so really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. 
Thanks to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects that you heard this episode. You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. You can join an excellent community of players and DMs that are always helping each other's games on our Discord. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. And, and play, play great, great games. games.